General David Petraeus, U.S. Army veteran, is a partner with the global investment firm KKR and the chairman of KKR Global Institute, which he established in June of 2013. Before joining KKR, he served in government for 38 and a half years, culminating his 37-year military career with six consecutive commands as a general officer, five of which were in combat. The surge in Iraq, U.S. Central Command, and U.S. coalition forces in Afghanistan. He then served as the director of the CIA. He graduated with distinction from the U.S. Military Academy in 1974 and later got a Ph.D. at Princeton. His many awards include, but aren't limited to, four Defense Distinguished Service Medals, the Secretary of State's Distinguished Service Award, the Bronze, uh, the Bronze Star Medal for Valor, and the Combat Action Bridge badge. Pardon me. In conversation with General Petraeus this evening is Meredith M. Walker. Meredith is Principal and Global Economist at MMW Research, a business consultancy delivering international research, relationships, and results. She is a speaker, author, and media commentator, providing strategic insights on the economy, geopolitics, and technology. After launching, launching her career as a Federal Reserve economist in both Dallas and New York, Meredith worked with international organizations focused on peaceful, peaceful problem solving. She served as global economist and counselor for the East-West Institute, a U.S.-based NGO focused on China and Turkey and the Middle East. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming General Petraeus and Meredith to the stage. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for the very kind introduction, Liz. Thanks for leaving out the part about how I was runner-up for, for time person of the year to Vladimir Putin. <laughs> that, that still stings. At least I got sanctioned by him two years ago. That made up for it. It's really great to be here with you all. Um, thanks, obviously, to the World Affairs Council. Thanks to DBU for uh, hosting us here. Thanks, Mr. President, for your kind words. Uh, I'm going to talk a lot about strategic leadership today. Um, you have right there somebody who personifies the qualities that you need in a strategic leader, and in particular, the ability to perform the four tasks that I'm sure we're going to discuss at some point in time. But thanks to all of you, and thanks, Meredith, for, for doing this. Thank you, General Petraeus. I know that all of us Dallas Texans are delighted for you to be here with us tonight and truly honored to speak with you about your brilliant new book, Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. Could you begin tonight by telling us what brought you to write this book? Well, my co-author, uh, Andrew Roberts, who's I think one of the great historians and biographers of our time, uh, he's now also Lord Roberts of Belgravia. He, he was elevated to the peerage. I'm not a peerage groupie. He, he wasn't a peer when I signed on to this thing. But he, I've known him for many, many years. We've done a lot of events. He did the single, uh, the best single volume biography of Churchill. Uh, he wrote about Napoleon. By the way, he thinks very dimly of the movie that's just come out, <laughs> which supposedly is based on his book. Uh, he did one on George III, the last king of America. We had great fun with that one. I, and I've interviewed him a number of times on stage and 
in New York and elsewhere, and then he's interviewed me a number of times at literary festivals in the UK and in, and in London. Uh, he called up and said, Russia's just invaded Ukraine. There's no book that provides the military historical context for this. How would you like to do one with me? And he'd never, this is his 20th book, he'd never had a co-author before. Uh, and I was delighted. Um, I'd been looking for an opportunity to write about the two wars that I was privileged to command at their height, Iraq and Afghanistan, and then also to re-examine Vietnam, which was the subject of my PhD dissertation, uh, but was at the 10 years after the war ended, and you know now we're many decades since then with lots of additional scholarship and lots of papers being declassified and so forth. And I've always enjoyed writing with other people. Um, I was a speechwriter for a number of senior folks over the years, including the NATO Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, and then oversaw them for the Chief of Staff of the Army and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, and then, you know, when you get to be a four-star, you've got lots of speechwriters and CIA director, and I enjoyed writing with them rather than them just sort of writing for me uh, and so forth, When also when I was a speechwriter. So it was a great opportunity. He's a delightful guy as well. He's one of these quintessential Brits with a great sense of humor, very gracious. He has an encyclopedic uh, recall for details that are often very humorous. Um, what's really remarkable about him is he has the same recall after he's been drinking as he has when he hasn't been drinking, <laughs> something that I, I don't have that ability to do. Um, but uh, so I agreed to do that. Um, and then it was fun. We, so I had never done this before. Um, and you know, there's a bit of a bidding war between the publishers and all this. Harper Collins won won the war, um, and so we did a video conference with them. And they said, "Well, how are you going to divvy up the writing?" And I hadn't really thought that much about it. But uh, Andrew responded very quickly, "Well, General Petraeus is going to write about the countries he's invaded, <laughs> plus Vietnam," uh, and he said, "And I'll fill in the rest." Uh, and it was a delightful process, and and we also had a great time on the book tour that we did. We did about gosh, I think five full weeks together, two weeks in the UK and then three weeks in the US. Well, General, for this audience, I think it's also important to note that Lord Andrew is an honorary Texan, I'm very Governor proud, Greg very proud Abbott. Of it, I might yes, add, he told yes. me all about it. He said, "If you ever introduce me, Meredith, you must say I'm an honorary Texan." But it was because of his biography of Churchill. And, General, what are you hoping that readers will take away from this book? I think the biggest takeaway what we very much want readers to take away is the importance of strategic leadership in conflict. Uh, the truth is that strategic leadership is important in any endeavor. It's important in the corporate world. I'll explain a good example of that. It's important in academia, where the academic politics are particularly vicious, of course. But it's also uh, nonprofits. I mean, think about it. It's always about, again, the quality of the strategic leadership. That determines whether you win or lose a war. And when I was between the three and four star uh, assignments in Iraq, you know, I was there as a two star, three star, four star, and then Central Command, uh, the Greater Middle East, and then Afghanistan. Between the three and four star tours, uh, when we also developed the counterinsurgency field manual and overhauled every aspect of professional development for our commissioned, non commissioned warrant officers, preparation of our forces to deploy and everything else. I also distilled for myself a construct of strategic leadership that I think works pretty well. It basically has four tasks that the strategic leader has to get right. You have to get the big ideas right. You have to understand the nature, in this case, of the conflict, 
all the factors that obtain the friendly forces, enemy forces, geographic terrain, human terrain, how a country works or doesn't, uh, the neighborhood, all of this. Um, and then you have to craft the right approach. You have to get the big ideas right. You then have to communicate the big ideas throughout the breadth and depth of the organization to everyone who has a stake in the outcome of the conflict. You then have to oversee the implementation of the big ideas. This is what you normally think of as leadership, by the way. This is the example that the leader provides, the energy, the inspiration. Uh, it's attracting the best and brightest and keeping them as long as you can and then bringing them back again. It's allowing those not measuring up to move on to something else. Uh, it's how you spend your time is a critical component. We spent a huge amount of time determining how I would spend my time. We had a huge butcher block piece of paper that showed everything I did every single day of the week. You know, combat's a seven-day-a-week endeavor. Uh, not quite 24 hours a day, but they're long days. And so you can get a lot in. There's no distractions. Uh, it, well, there's some enemy distractions and some congressional delegations, to be sure. But otherwise, <laughs> but, you know, basically every single day. We started the day doing a variety of things that we did seven days a week. Uh, and then depending on the day, uh, there were some things that we did several times a week, twice a week, once a week, every other week, once a month, and then once a quarter, we actually did a six-hour civil military counterinsurgency campaign r review and analysis. So the ambassador was my, my battle buddy, my partner, uh, and then I mean, people would come in from Washington, Central Command Headquarters, everywhere to watch this. All the other ambassadors would be there, all the generals and everything else. So that you had that rhythm, but you know, how you spend your time not only shows what's important, it's how you drive, again, the various lines of operation, the most significant of the aspects of the campaign plan that were captured in your big ideas, communicated through various ways, and then now you're actually implementing. And on that battle rhythm as well, you have to have what we termed action-forcing mechanisms that would enable, or in some cases, force me to determine how we needed to refine the big ideas to do it again and again and again, because the context changes. You, you achieve success, you experience setbacks, the battlefield changes, the forces on it change, and so therefore you have to make adaptations to the strategy. And you're learning all the time as well. We actually had centers for lessons learned teams from the Army, Na uh, Marine Corps, Air Force, uh, Special Operations, Counterinsurgency Center, Asymmetric Warfare Group. One hour a month I spent with the full colonels that were the head of these after they had a process to distill what they wanted. So again, you, you go through all of that and you just keep continuing that process again and again. Now, a strategic leader is different from all other leaders. All leaders perform these four tasks. The difference is that the strategic leader at the very top is making some very, very fundamental decisions. And if in the case of warfare, you'll have the President of the United States who makes the most fundamental of decisions, George H.W. Bush, who right after Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait, says this will not stand. That's a pretty big idea. Uh, we are going to, to evict him from Kuwait. Uh, and by the way, the military on that particular occasion, when they first met around the Situation Room table the day after the invasion of Kuwait, was not hugely eager to do this. They were still burdened by the lessons of Vietnam. It seemed ambiguous. We weren't sure what was going on. Would the Saudis accept us? All these issues. He says, this will not stand. That solves that. And the military were pretty good at taking orders. Uh, and so then the military set about what are the big ideas in a military perspective for how we're going to accomplish 
that policy objective, how we're going to perform, uh, operationalize the biggest of the big ideas. George W. Bush, who says, we're not pulling out, we're going to surge. That is a huge idea. And by the way, over the objection of many of his senior military uh, advisors. So the president makes very fundamental, you know, we're going to war, we're not this kind of thing. And then the theater commander has to take those policy objectives and determine what is the campaign that can enable us to achieve those objectives. It's not easy, though. And the truth is that in many of the cases in the book, we recount examples where we did not get the big ideas right. How many Vietnam veterans do we have in here? I'm sure we have, must have a few. Well, thanks, first of all, for what you did then and, and a, a, a generation that, was, that followed the law, responded to the nation's request that they serve, did so honorably, and came back and were spat upon. They did not get the welcome home that those of my generation and those that I was privileged to command got. And by the way, it was the Vietnam veterans that ensured that our generation was welcomed home in the way that they should have. So thank you for what you did back in the day. <clears throat> but the truth is, we didn't get the big ideas right in Vietnam for 13 years. Um, we took a small war and made it a big war. We decided on a strategy of search and destroy and attrition. Um, a lot of indiscriminate use of air power, artillery, mad minutes, all the rest of this. Um, and it wasn't until General Abrams took command in 1968 that you finally got a joined up civil military unity of effort counterinsurgency campaign plan. But by that point in time, after Tet in, in early 68, the support in the U.S. was already eroding very precipitously, and we could not carry that through. So this is not, not easy. Uh, it seems like it's easy, but it is not, and we'll talk about this a good bit more. Um, but that's the, the biggest of the takeaways, keeping in mind, again, that everyone below the strategic leader does still perform these four tasks for his or her organization and mission. The difference is that you do it within the intent, the confines, the decisions made by the strategic leader. And if the strategic leader doesn't get the big ideas right, everything else is building on a shaky intellectual foundation, and you generally are not going to prevail in a conflict. Well, let's go deeper into the example of Iraq and the surge in Iraq on strategic leadership. One of my favorite chapters, of course, in the book is on Iraq, and it's told in the first person by you. Yeah, this is interesting because, you know, you write history in the third person. That's what we were doing. And so we turned in the Iraq and Afghanistan chapters, which, again, I drafted. That was part of our arrangement. Um, and the editor came back and he said, this, you know, this doesn't quite work. Um, he said, you know, you were there as a two-star for the invasion, commanding the Great Screaming Eagles, the 101st Airborne Division. Um, you came back pretty quickly as a three-star to build this whole train and equip effort. You went home, that's the one break that you had, and then you went back as the four-star for the surge, stayed an extra long period during that. Then you were the boss of the guy in Iraq. Yeah, then you had a break. It was in Afghanistan, but you weren't focused on Iraq for a period. But then CIA director, you're focused on Iraq again. And he said, you know, it just doesn't read right to say. And then General Petraeus went to see Prime Minister Maliki, and, you know, they got in a big, big fight over this or that. He said, write it in the first person. And so we went back and retooled it, and by golly, it actually, I think it did work that way. For what it's worth, they also asked, I read it. So I did the audio, those two chapters for the audio book. 
But the bottom line is that the surge that mattered most was not the surge of forces that was again so courageously approved by President George W. Bush. Um, that was a huge enabler of the surge. We needed those extra forces to implement the new strategy very, very rapidly. We basically had six months to produce results or Congress could have done to Iraq what they did to Vietnam. The surge that mattered was the surge of ideas. It was the change in strategy. And you know, people talk a lot about change management. You can't change anything more than 180 degrees, which is exactly what we did. <clears throat> the biggest of the big, what had happened is we had a reasonably good strategy, it actually was sound, and then it was invalidated by a horrific action uh, about 10 months before the president decided to conduct the surge which invalidated our strategy at that time of handing off the Iraqi security forces, pulling out of the neighborhoods and preparing to go home because it set off a cycle of violence between Sunni and Shia Arabs that became an all-out civil war. Uh, and the violence by the time the president made the decision to conduct the surge was horrific. It was 53 dead civilians due to violence every 24 hours just in Baghdad alone. Uh, so it had to be brought under control. So we had to reverse what we've been doing. We literally had to go back into the neighborhoods. And we had to fight for it, by the way, because they don't just, you know, they don't welcome you back in when they've been fighting over them in one side or the other. And we would use hot spots with big data that showed us where the front lines were, and we would put our forces right in between the Sunni and Shia. Uh, and they'd be coming at us in the morning sometimes with suicide car bombs. So you had to have a wall up all around it during the course of that period of darkness. We established 77 additional locations just in the Baghdad area alone. Is again, you can't secure the people if you don't live with them. Um, we also took back control from the Iraqi security forces who had been beaten up so badly during the escalation of violence that they were rendered essentially combat ineffective. We had to pull them offline, reconstitute them, and then could reintroduce them once we'd reduce the level of violence, and then gradually thin out. Um, Another big idea, you can't kill or capture your way out of an industrial strength insurgency. We need to get a real program of reconciliation where we try to persuade the rank and file, not the bad guy, not the really evil people, but those that are sort of caught in the middle and that are often chameleon-like. They're just trying to survive. And they've been going with these other crowd because they're winning. And we have to persuade them that we're going to get Al-Qaeda out of their neighborhood and we want them at least not to impede us, ideally to support us. Ultimately, we convinced them to support us. So we reconciled with about 80,000 Sunni Arabs uh, in the fight against Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which we destroyed, and then the major Sunni insurgent groups, and then another 23,000 Shia militia of the, the very bad Shia militia elements supported by Iran, and then destroyed them during the surge as well. First during the first year, second during the second year. So these are huge ideas. But by the way, you strip away the reconcilables, the irreconcilables are still there. And we had a whole cell that would identify, you didn't want to be on our list of irreconcilables because you're going to end up on the X. And that means you're, you have to be captured or killed. Uh, and every single night, our special mission units were going out doing 12 to 15 operations, targeted operations, very sophisticated, uh, very specific uh, operations a night. Uh, and then over time, this just drove violence down. Ultimately, over the 18-month period that we had additional forces, I stayed longer than that. But over that 18-month period, we drove violence down by nearly 90%, gave Iraq an entire new opportunity. They did really well with it for about three and a half years. We had a nice orderly withdrawal down of our forces and handed off to Iraqi security forces. 
And then unfortunately, the prime minister undid that stuff, some of what we did, uh, and ended up taking their eye off what was by then the Islamic State, no longer Al-Qaeda in Iraq. A couple of years later, caliphate, we have to go back in. But during that period, again, of the forces on the ground that were conducting combat operations before the final withdrawal, that surge turned it around completely, and it gave us a whole new opportunity. Iraq's very imperfect. Uh, it's got lots of shortcomings. It has greater Iranian influence than we'd like. But it's also a country in which the prime minister still publicly requests U.S. forces be on the ground. It's uh, still a country in which a lot of what we help them establish uh, are serving them reasonably well. But again, it started with a president who courageously decided not to just pull out and give up, but to actually reinforce uh, and picked a new commander, a new ambassador, a new secretary of defense, and then empowered us to do it. Um, and again, uh, a very, very courageous action because many of the service chiefs and others had v serious reservations about it. Um, and then he also, you know, in his battle rhythm, uh, showing what's most important to him, every Monday morning in Washington, 7.30 a.m., nothing happens in Washington before 9 or 10 a.m. in the White House at the presidential level. Uh, but on a Monday morning at 7.30 to 8.30, he'd walk into the Situation Room, he'd have a video conference with the ambassador and me, the whole national security team around the table, and it went directly to us. And so this is a massive uh, enabler for us because everybody knows and Ambassador Crocker and I didn't go out there and lose gracefully we thought this was really our last job in government and we often acted that way uh, but we were trying to pull a country out of a civil war and we were ready to drop dimes with the President of the United States if that was what was necessary in truth it was not people realized uh, we need to support the military with everything that we have beyond the military, because the military went all in. We had nothing left. I mean, if it was there, I would ask for it, and I did. We figured out everything that was available and eventually got it. But you see the example, again, of strategic leadership. We got the big ideas right. I sought to communicate them as effectively as I could. I even had my own counterinsurgency guidance that we issued to the troops, a series of admonitions. One of them was particular, a number that were particularly enjoyable, but one was, was because it's a small unit war, and so the, we called the lieutenants and sergeants strategic lieutenants because their tactical actions, just like in Vietnam, could have strategic consequences. Not always for the good, by the way. <laughs> Sometimes it's for the bad. So we, but we wanted them to understand the big ideas at my level so they could translate them into their level outside the wire, under body armor, Kevlar, never knowing if they're going to be greeted with a hand shake or a hand grenade, but being ready to respond to either. And so one of them said, promote initiative. In the absence of orders, figure out what they should have been and execute aggressively. <laughs> and I did a fair amount of that at my level as well. Well, let's talk about Afghanistan. Um, examples of strategic leadership in Afghanistan. You've heard it said that uh, Vietnam, people compared that to Afghanistan. You didn't see it that way. I didn't. No, I thought Number one, Vietnam ultimately, eventually, was unsustainable. The amount of commitment that we had, it was a drafty army. Uh, the cost in lives and blood and treasure just was not sustainable. We had to, and then obviously popular support eroded precipitously. The country was in turmoil. I think there are probably a few people around here that old enough to remember how difficult things were in our country at that time. 
uh, it seemed as if everyone was taking on the institutions. Um, our inner cities were also in turmoil. It just was not something that was sustainable. Um, and President Nixon and Henry Kissinger recognized that. By the way, I should note that Henry Kissinger, I think maybe the last blog blurb that he did for a book is on the back uh, of conflict. He was a close friend, a mentor, um, and I think a great American. And he engineered a way out of this. Yes, it didn't sustain, wasn't sustained beyond two years, but, but it did, I think, did something quite historic there, not to mention in the Yom Kippur War, bringing about a ceasefire there, the opening to China, detente with Russia and a few other crucially important initiatives. But Vietnam just could not be sustained any further. Afghanistan, I felt, at the end was very sustainable. It was unsatisfactory, it was frustrating, it was maddening, um, but we only had 3,500 troops there. Uh, it was costing us maybe 25 billion a year, way, way, way down from what it was before. You know, we, when I was there, we had 100,000 Americans and 50,000 others, uh, and huge numbers of diplomats, spies, development workers, et cetera. And I thought this was very sustainable in terms of blood and treasure. Again, if you haven't lost a soldier in a year and a half and it's not costing much, why not just leave it there? Yes, I got it. We want to end endless wars, except that if you end the endless war, the war actually doesn't end. You're ending our participation in it. The war actually accelerated. And my fear was what actually did happen, that the country is going to collapse. And what you'll have is a return of an eighth century interpretation of ultra conservative Islam uh, and partnerships with extremists again and all the rest, which all, all of which sadly came about. Um, Afghanistan is a very interesting case because you had periods where we did really extraordinary stuff and then periods where we didn't focus much on it uh, and we squandered time that we had. And then we got it right again and, and so on. But think about it. I mean, the initial invasion after the 9-11 attacks was extraordinary. A handful of special forces on horseback together with CIA officers with footlockers of cash together with warlords and their tribal members basically were able to force the Taliban to mask. Keep in mind, of course, the Taliban refused to extradite Osama bin Laden and the ringleaders of the 9-11 attacks. The 9-11 attacks having been planned in a sanctuary under the Taliban in eastern Afghanistan. Uh, and then so the determination was made, we got to take them down and eliminate the sanctuary. And that was accomplished and with almost breathtaking speed, uh, actually. In fact, we ended up taking Kabul faster, really, than poly the, the results on the ground outran the policy. Um, regrouped, got that together, got the, the bond process, a variety of others, got Karzai, and then really shifted focus to Iraq and Afghanistan became what the military calls an economy of force effort. It was not the main effort. Iraq sucked up everything that we had. Admiral Mullen, the great chairman of the Joint Chiefs, when I was in these three four-star combat commands, used to say, in Iraq, we do what we must. In Afghanistan, what we, we do what we can, and what we can has never been enough. So we were always sort of shooting behind the target. Yes, we shattered the Taliban, but they drifted into Pakistan uh, and they established a couple of sanctuaries there that were very substantial. Our Pakistani partners refused to deal with those and prevented us from dealing with them, with, it, with some exceptions uh, in the tribal areas. And of course, on the night that we went and got Osama bin Laden, uh, but we didn't tell him about it first. Um, 
that was quite an extraordinary night, by the way. I was the commander in Afghanistan for that night, that one unit, and uh, Admiral McRaven, who was the commander of the Joint Special Operations Command at that time, that sole operation chopped to the CIA because they were operating outside. We didn't have authorities outside Afghanistan. And to be fair, the CIA had found them as well. But I, had, I owned the problems if it didn't go well. We had a lot of contingency plans. We had a lot of stuff that was available in case they ran into problems on the ground in Pakistan or in the air coming home. They did not, in the end, uh, really an extraordinary operation. And I actually, as a footnote to that, when it was over, so I had, we had a special command post at my NATO headquarters that was solely for special operations and then even special mission unit. And of all things, the colonel that was running that had been a lieutenant for me when I was a battalion commander. Uh, and I went in there, I snuck out of my own area was I was billeted, I was in running shorts and stuff. My team didn't know I was there because no one knew about the operation at all in this headquarters except for me. I went into there and I asked all of them except for the colonel to leave. And when they were outside, we dialed up all these and I said, you know, tonight we're going after target number one. Uh, and then we monitored that operation ready for a variety of contingencies. Um, and at the end of the operation, um, you know, when we heard Geronimo and then had the confirmation, uh, there were no high fives, you know, it was not, we didn't spike the football in, in the end zone or in the operations center. You just turned to each other and I said, you know, it was a privilege to oversee this operation with you, Bill. We've been together for 20 some odd years. Um, now let's let the guys back in and let's dial up the 12 operations that we're doing here in Afghanistan tonight. So war went on. But the bottom line is Afghanistan, again, it really took us nine years from toppling the government, eliminating that sanctuary with Osama bin Laden getting away to get the inputs right. So this is not just the strategy and the big ideas, which General McChrystal got right before I took command from him. Uh, it was also the right level of forces, almost the right level of forces. It was the right level of diplomat spies and all these others. It's the right organizational architecture to carry all this out with all the different components that are required there. We had several more when I took over. Uh, it's the right preparation of our forces, the right equipment, the right materiel, uh, the right leaders, that's important too. Uh, and then tragically, we only kept it right for about six months before we started to draw down in a drawdown that was announced during the same speech which announced the buildup which was always something that struck me uh, as a little counterproductive. If you're in a contest of wills with an enemy, um, you don't want to tell them that you're going to draw down on a date certain. Uh, you want them to think that you're committed to this. And we always had a challenge, really, with every one of the administrations of consistency within the administrations, much less from administration to administration. And then I said, as I said, the deal to leave was, I thought, a, a, a terrible diplomatic deal. And then decision to carry through with the deal by the current administration uh, was also uh, a mistake. And I think tragically that that was validated. Yes. Well, now let's turn to the conflict that prompted the writing of this book, Ukraine. Could you give us some examples of strategic leadership as exhibited? Yeah, by this President is a great Zelensky. case study. I mean, think of President Zelensky. Um, what's his first big idea? Russians invade. We offer him, you know, we think you should leave Kiev and go to the western part of the country. He says, I don't want to ride. I want ammunition. That's a big idea. 
I'm staying in Kyiv. My family's going to stay in Kyiv. We're going to fight for Kyiv. We're not going to let the Russians take control of Kyiv, topple the government, and replace me with a pro-Russian figure. We're going to mobilize the entire country. No men are going to leave Ukraine. Yes, women and children, given the amount of violence, will let them uh, move around in the country or perhaps go to Eastern Europe. Um, those are seriously big ideas. And his communication skills, my goodness. I mean, he was an actor, after all. He was a comedian, you know, who played the president so brilliantly that he gets elected president. Um, his, you know, they've, they've called him Churchill with an iPhone. Um, he has truly been Churchillian in his communication skills. And, you know, modulated specific messages for the U.S. Congress. The first, actually the first wartime foreign leader to to speak to both houses of Congress since Churchill did during World War II. Um, and yet again, very modulated, specific messages for the House of Commons, for the Bundestag, for the other parliaments and our Congress. Nightly uh, in, uh, speeches to his own population, uh, et cetera. Then think of the example he provides. He takes his suit off and puts on, you know, basically various forms of OD uniforms, which he's had on ever since. He wears them for everything. He goes to the front lines. Uh, you know, Putin's sitting at the end of a long marble table, and you know, somewhere down there are the minions that are clearly, they know where they are in the hierarchy relative to him. Um, Zelensky's out in Bakhmut on the front lines in Zaporizhia, pinning medals on, on his soldiers, thanking them, uh, meeting with widows, going to uh, memorial ceremonies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and again, a variety of the other tasks of the overseeing the implementation of the big ideas. I've met with him. I was over there six months ago, met with him, and then more recently met with the uh, Ukrainian commander about six weeks ago. Uh, and then changing the big ideas, refining it again and again and again. So very impressive. And then on the other hand, Putin, um, who got the big ideas wrong. He thought that they could take Kiev in three days, topple the government, as I said, replace Zelensky. Uh, and go home to a victory parade, completely underestimated the resistance, the qualities of the Ukrainian forces, overestimated his forces, underestimated, I suspect, our response to this, which I think was really very impressive, although certain decisions have taken longer than they should have. But uh, again, he's not on the front lines. He does these occasionally sort of stiff visits somewhere you're not sure where, but mostly is again at the end of that long marble table showing who's in charge. Um, so really impressive on one side, not so impressive on the other, but not, this is still incomplete. And it's settled into a stalemate. Unfortunately, the Ukrainians were not able to achieve what we hoped they would this summer for a variety of different reasons, including that we did delay the decisions on tanks, on aircraft, on long-range uh, missiles, cluster munitions, a variety of other capabilities that might have helped them. Not sure they would have guaranteed a breakthrough, but it sure would have given them a much better chance. I believe that this is as right versus wrong as it gets in the world, uh, although there's another example of that now that we might talk about as well with Israel and Hamas. But uh, this is an unprovoked, brutal invasion uh, of a democracy, however imperfect, uh, by an autocracy led by someone with a grievance-filled, twisted, revisionist, revanchist view of history that cannot be allowed to succeed. 
because if Putin succeeds, uh, he's not stopping in Ukraine. He's going on to Moldova, to Lithuania, the other Baltic states, which are NATO members. Um, and so again, I believe it's very much in our natural in national interest to continue to provide support, even as we also do without question to Israel, to Taiwan, to our southern border, et cetera. And I hope that I, I heard you speak about uh, the quality that is in short supply in Congress these days called compromise, uh, where you know you just don't fight to the death for whatever. Occasionally, you have to actually meet in the middle. Uh, and I hope that we can do that on that particular issue because I think it's vitally important. Well, and the same comes to Israel. Would you like to talk about sure. the big ideas? Yeah, I think, um, again, first of all, I think we need to understand the, the put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelis. Uh, they lost 1,200 people, brutally, barbarically murdered in unspeakable actions that were even videoed and then uploaded uh, and shown to the world for all to see. Um, the equivalent of 1,200 for us, keeping in mind that we lost not quite 3,000 in the 9-11 attacks, would be about 42,000. So think if we had taken 42,000 losses, plus, because there are a lot of wounded and injured as well, over 100,000 of those. And then the 240 hostages would equate to somewhere around 7,000. So again, think about that in our those numbers for us, given the comparison of the populations. Again, Israel being a country of about 9.3 million people. Um, that led to a conclusion that I think is correct, uh, that Hamas is irreconcilable. They're like the Islamic State. Um, you're not gonna reconcile with the rank and file of them. They have to be captured or killed. The decision is to destroy them, destruction in a military term, means to render the enemy incapable of accomplishing his mission without uh, reconstitution. And so keep your mind, on, keep your eye on reconstitution, by the way, because remember when the Iraqis took their eye off the Islamic State, two years later, uh, the Islamic State formed the first ever caliphate that had to be eliminated over time. Um, so destroying Hamas and also dismantling the political wing uh, which oversaw this uh, and approved all of this and, and, and guided it. Those are pretty big ideas. And it's hard to imagine, in fact, Andrew Roberts and I thought through, is there any urban operation that compares with the challenges of this in the period that we cover from 1945 to the present day? And the answer is no. Uh, this is exceedingly difficult. <clears throat> it's an enemy that doesn't wear a uniform, uh, who fights from among civilians, uses civilians as, as human shields, has a large number of, of uh, hostages still, even after the ones that were released in the ex exchange uh, for the criminals that Israel had in their jails. Um, it is an enemy who's in a very densely populated urban area with access to 300 miles of tunnels underneath that are very substantial. Uh, it's an enemy that at a certain point in time is likely to start blowing themselves up to take uh, Israeli soldiers with them, either in suicide vests or suicide car bombs. This is a particularly pernicious problem. We experienced it considerably in Iraq, especially during the early months of the surge. We usually had well over 100 of those in a month, and then we drove down uh, to less than 10 by the end of the surge. So again, it's hard to imagine something more challenging than this will be. I do think there need to be some additional big ideas, and I have shared this with individuals uh, that 
there needs to be uh, a recognition that, yes, you've got to destroy Hamas. How you do this does matter. Uh, and recognizing that you take down the government, it's possible Israel will own this. I think that's probably the base case. It's all well and good for our diplomats to say, but there should be a competent, capable, trustworthy Palestinian entity that comes over and oversees us. Of course there should be. But there's not even one of those in the West Bank, much less on, on prepared to deploy orders, as we would say. In other words, ready to go into Gaza to take over uh, on the backs of Israeli tanks. The Arab states obviously concerned uh, about the Palestinians, but not seeing a lot of hands going up to volunteer to take this on. I don't think the U.S. wants to be the base piece for a multinational force or coalition that would go in although that's an option that I think shouldn't be ruled out. You could almost expand the counter-Islamic State coalition, add Hamas, and maybe somehow you could do that, but that coalition might fracture over that. So I fear that the Israelis are going to have to do something that they don't want to do, we don't want them to do, which is reoccupy Gaza. But the sooner that decision is made, probably the better, because if you know you're going to own something the way you clear it of the enemy, I think will be somewhat different. So I think that's a very important issue. And I think they should do um, what we did for the people when we were going into major cities. We did clear huge cities, 400,000, 500,000, even bigger, Mosul, and so on. And we would tell the population in advance, life is going to be better for you if we're able to separate you from Al-Qaeda. And you should want to help us. Again, this is about reconciling uh, with some of them, but the general population, at least again, don't get in our way, don't impede this. We'll try to do this in a way that minimizes civilian loss of life uh, and damage to infrastructure because we know we're going to own this. So we would clear and hold and rebuild right away and get the people into these areas while securing them. Uh, I think, again, that that communication ensuring that the Palestinians know that life is going to be much better in Gaza and I think in the West Bank should be communicated as well after we get rid of Hamas. Keep in mind, by the way, Hamas is not a problem just in Gaza. It's a problem, a much smaller problem uh, in the West Bank as well. And then, frankly, get on to resolving the issues that have been so problematic and one of the most difficult uh, issues in the world, not just the Middle East, but that is the, the issue of how Israel and the Palestinians uh, can live side by side. Thank you so much, General. I think we have time for one final question. I've got a few very good ones here from the audience, um, so I may just give you two. Number one, um, if we talk about the future of warfare, how much of a threat do you think China poses to America? But then finally, I just need to get this one in. Um, what is the Iron Eagle, and how do you manage to stay in shape? <laughs> <laughs> So the, the Iron Eagle... And on the positive note, yeah. The Iron Eagle is a competition that we ran. So every unit that I was privileged to command, you know, there's always some nickname for it. In the 101st Airborne Division, we were Screaming Eagles because it was the patch and so forth. In fact, I think the... Where's our, where's our combat veteran of the 101st? Stand up. Take a look. Stand up. Come on. And point to the Screaming Eagle patch. There you go. So we always had physical fitness competitions in these units. We had the Iron Rakasan. Don't ask me to explain. That was just a nickname. It, stood, it was Japanese for falling down parachutes or something. It's an airborne unit. 
Um, and then we had the uh, I was <laughs> the Iron Devils. We had Devils and Baggy Pants was just some name the Germans gave to the, the actually Maggie Majellis's regiment. Um, and we had the Iron Eagle. We even had the Iron Major when I was the commandant of the Staff College as a three-star and a bunch of other hats that I had. Um, and these were physical fitness competitions. I believe life is a competitive endeavor. You don't get a trophy just for showing up in the real world. You get it for being the best, not just individually, but the best team player you can be as well. And we took that really seriously to almost extreme, as some may know. Um, and so these competitions were fierce. By the way, uh, up until I was a, f a, a two-star, I always graded them myself because the competition was so fierce they didn't want different graders because, you know, this guy might be easy, this guy be, I, I was always the same. By the way, I always had to compete too. Um, so it was always a good workout. But the Iron Eagle was a particularly challenging one. That was the first one, it became so big. When you're commanding a division of 18,000 soldiers or whatever, um, I finally had to, so what I did is I certified the graders. They were all airborne air assault rangers, non-commissioned officers, crusty, tough, and we had very clear standards. I mean, there was no, you had clicker boards. If it didn't click, you don't get credit for the push-up. If you don't lock out fully up, you don't, and their hands on your elbow. On, on pull-ups, you had to touch your Adam's apple. There's no, you know, you can't sort of wave at the bar as you go by and none of this stuff. And you had to fully extend. Again, it was, we had a lot of fun, and you can see that I was somewhat into yeah, this. You measured what mattered, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I was pretty proud that, you know, I was, you know, in my early to mid-50s when I was the commander of the, the staff college and another bunch of organizations. And so these majors were all, you know, their early 30s. And I was still in the top seven or eight and, and, and mad that I wasn't higher, actually. But, <laughs> but competition, you know, and I hope, I'm sure you express that here, Mr. President, that, again, you, you, you have to compete. I mean, nobody wants to be led, especially not in combat, by somebody who's proud to be average. Um, they want to be led by somebody who's striving to be all that he or she can be. Uh, and we were pretty serious about this. And, um, you know, and again, if, if you weren't ready for that, you might want to try that other organization down the street because we're not about that. And so we tried to build a culture of really extraordinary fitness, uh, discipline, uh, professional expertise. Uh, we had the most aggressive live fires in the entire 101st Airborne Division. That was when I was a Lieutenant Colonel Battalion Commander and in the 82nd Airborne when I was a Brigade Commander. They were so aggressive that I got shot in one of them through the chest. <laughs> Great training for the medics, you know. <laughs> see, if, see if you can save your Battalion Commander's life. <laughs> they obviously did. Uh, I, again, small PS to that one. So, you know, you get on the medevac bird, First, they did all the right things for a sucking chest wound. You know, they used battery plastic in the back and they get an IV going and everything else. So they take you to the post hospital and they're just trying, they're trying to save your life because you're suffocating on your own fluid. So they cut an X in your side and they just jam a hard plastic tube right into your lung. That was painful. Uh, I mean, <laughs> seriously. And they even said, this is really going to hurt. And they did. Then you're going to live, though, because now they have suction. You're probably so then they said, but, you know, we really don't want to do thoracic surgery on a Saturday morning here in our post hospital. We're going to send you down to Vanderbilt University Medical Center. So who comes in to do thoracic surgery? But Dr. Bill Frist, future majority leader of the Senate. I was dying to meet Bill Frist. <laughs> <laughs> it paid off big time after that. But on to China. Um, look, it's. It's all China all the time. 
Um, we, the most important relationship in the entire world is that between the U.S. and China and our Western allies together and China. Deterrence has to be rock solid, and deterrence is a function of the potential adversary's assessment of your capabilities on the one hand and your willingness to employ them on the other. One of the lessons in the book is what you do in other places of the world affects perceptions in, in, in around the world. If you have a red line that is not a red line, that undermines deterrence. If you pull out of Afghanistan when you don't really have to, that communicates to Putin that, you know, maybe I can invade Ukraine and they won't do much about it. He was wrong about that. But you have to be very, very careful with that. If we were not to continue to aid Ukraine, what message would that send uh, to Beijing? Well, th you know, they're, they're a great power in decline. Uh, they couldn't even keep 3,500. In fact, President Xi said, see what happened? They're an undependable ally, and, and he said they're a great power in decline. It is about that relationship more than any others. If you think of the United States as the guy in the circus uh, it, who, in our national interest, keeps a lot of plates spinning, and there's a lot of them, more than at any time since 1945, uh, and more complex since then. So the China plate, North Korea plate, Russia plate, Iran plate, individual Islamist extremist plates we still have to keep spinning. Uh, there are cyber threat plates. Is all kinds of challenges with our allies and partners, as long as we treat them well, that we have to deal with. But the bottom line is I think that we can deal with them. I think we do have the capacity to do it. I do think we're the greatest country in the world and that we will continue to be great. We, we are constantly made great again and again and again by the system uh, that we have, uh, by the structures that we have, by our institutions and by uh, great leaders, particularly great strategic leaders. And I believe it's in our national interest and in our, the interest of our prosperity to do it as well. And I hope that those in Washington, again, can demonstrate a bit more of this quality that has proven to be a bit elusive there. So perhaps you might go back there, having risen from groundskeeper here to president of the, of the university, uh, you might go to Washington and show them how it's done there. <laughs> Look, it's really been a privilege to be with all of you. I'm deeply grateful. Thank you.